Uh, we're starting a new series. Everybody see the nice little hand-drawn church on your bulletins there? Stephen Stow, amazing artist. Um, we're calling it Called Out. It's just three weeks on the church, but we're calling it Called Out because that's actually what the Greek word for church in your New Testaments means. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It's a compound word that comes from the, the prefix ek, which means out, and klesia, which is a verb that means to call. And so the church is actually seen as the called out ones. We've been called out from an, a regular life apart from God into life through our faith in Christ with God. And that's what makes us the church. The church is not a place. It's not a where, it's a who. You don't say that you go to church. You say that you belong to church, that you are the church. In fact, I would love for us to strike that from our vernacular, from our language. Don't tell people where you go to church. Tell them who you belong to. That's your church. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the wonders of the church over the next three weeks. In the subsequent two weeks, after this one, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians again, spend most of our, uh, the beginning part of our year there as we finish up what we started last fall. Uh, but we're going to see Paul kind of turn his attention in Ephesians to the church and how we're meant to be one. There's a oneness in the church. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, how we're meant to be equipped and sent and enabled to do the ministry of God. We'll talk about that in the subsequent week in Ephesians chapter 4. But uh, uh, today, I want to talk to you uh, from another part of the scripture that references this church in Ephesus. It's in Revelation chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's all the way in the back. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read uh, from the writings of John here in the Revelation, a letter that Jesus has him pen for this church that we've been studying, this church called Ephesus. And in it, we're going to see that he uh, admonishes them, he um, instructs them, corrects them, and tells them you've got to get back to knowing who you are. We're going to try to answer that question today. Who do we think we are? Uh, turn to someone next to you and ask them that. Uh, say, hey, who do you think you are? Is anybody answering the person next to you? Are you telling them? <clears throat> we spend most of our time as a culture telling pe other people who we think they are. Well, here's what I think of you, right? Uh, but we don't often uh, start conversations, especially as we're getting to know people, by asking, say, hey, who do you think you are? <laughs> this sounds weird. In fact, the only time I've ever really been asked that question uh, was by my mom when I was in trouble. Anybody ever get that from a parent? Who do you think you are, right? And it's a valid question for a kid because I would submit to you that every time I got into trouble, I had some self uh, uh, misconceptions going on. I, I, I thought wrongly about myself. Like when I decided to take the law into my own hands and execute punishment on my little sister for stealing my G.I. Joe and making her marry, or him marry uh, Barbie for the ninth time. And, uh, you know, I... I forcibly separated G.I. Joe from Barbie and, and left a mark on my little sister in the process, right? My mom came in and, and she asked me, Mark, who do you think you are? And at that moment, I, I thought I was the law. I thought I was the judge and executioner. But I wasn't. I was just a kid. And that was my little sister. And that's not my role. When I ate all the cookies uh, in the cookie jar, after my mom had specifically told me not to eat them all because dad was coming home for work and he was going to want one, she got angry at me and she asked me, who do you think you are? And at that moment, I thought, well, I'm the cookie eater. I mean, Mark and cookies go together, right? 
I'm supposed to have this, Mom. You don't understand. It's my destiny to eat the cookies. But it wasn't. She had instructed me. In fact, she did that often. She would tell me not to do something or to do something, and I would either not do what she told me to do or do what she told me not to do. Has anybody grown up doing that with their parents? And when I would disobey my mom, she would look at me and she'd say, Mark, who do you think you are? And in those moments when I would disobey my mom, I would think that I was in charge, that her words didn't matter, that, that she was not over me. And that's what got me into trouble. That's what gets you into trouble, is you not understanding who you are. What we think of ourselves will shape our lives. Everybody agree with that? Usually, uh, when we meet people, we don't ask that question, who do you think you are? What do we ask them? What's up? What have you been doing? Uh, if we're in a more formal setting, oh, tell me what you do. Tell me what your job is, or where did you go to college? We, we, we want to know actions and activities about people, right? We want to know what they've done, and, and this is fine. I don't want to poo-poo this too much. Certainly, life cannot just be spent you know, on a mountain humming and, and you know, meditating on who I am. I have to go live. I gotta eat, I gotta provide, I gotta love and be loved. I, I get it, the things, life is action, I get that. You gotta do things. And, and if we don't do things, life suffers. Does everybody agree? I mean, like you gotta move and act and fix and repair and, in order for things to run smoothly. My, my son uh, came into my, uh, uh, well, he actually left my house Friday evening at about 10.30, out the garage door that leads to our garage from our hallway, and as he turned around to come back in, the door wouldn't turn. And so he starts at 10.30 banging on the door of our garage, which is right next to our bedroom, and our dog starts freaking out. And I didn't know at the time that my wife wasn't asleep. She's usually asleep by that time. So I am, immediately as I'm watching uh, the, the bolts play, uh, I'm furious at my kid for waking up my dog and my wife, and, but, but he can't get in the house, Right? And so I go in, and I, you know, as a dad, I'm like, well, dummy, just you know, turn the knob. And I turn the knob, and, and, the, and the knob's broken. The knob does not work. It's not locked. It's just something inside the mechanism of the knob has slipped, and, and, and the, you can turn all you want. It's not going to release the latch. So uh, you know, explain to him that there is a door on the other side of the garage that he can actually raise and come into the house through the front door. But I don't want to have to do that because I'm a lazy American, right? And I want to access my house from the garage that I you know, pull up next to. And so uh, I set about to try to fix this thing. Who's heard me tell stories about fixing things before? <laughs> it didn't go well. Because I tried all the things that I needed to do. I even uh, consulted YouTube. Uh, you know, how do you fix a stuck door? That's exactly what I wrote in the bar. And, uh, and I got this video and I tried all those things and, and worked patiently for about 25 minutes of the process until finally I'm like, this is making me angry. And so I just started taking my needles, pliers in there and I just tried to pull physically pull the latch from inside the little hole that holds your doorknob, just rip, just tearing it apart, piece by piece, working so hard not to slip into some Tourette's fit. Are you with me? <laughs> 45 minutes later, I went to bed. I'm like, we're just gonna use the front door for the rest of the time that we own this house, I guess. Because <laughs> I'm not messing with that anymore. The next morning, uh, we're having uh, uh, staff and elder party tonight, lots of people coming over, so I had my friend Walter come over and uh, help me kind of set up for that, and I was like, hey, Walter, you build houses. Take a look at this door for me. He's like, oh, yeah, it looks like you messed that up pretty good, and he, he grabs, he says, you got a screwdriver, and he starts messing around with it. He says, you got another screwdriver, and in three minutes, Walter accessed my home. Love that guy. Kind of hate that guy, too, right? 
But all that had to happen. My point is, is that we have to do things. We, even if we fail, we have to try. We have to go and, and find other solutions because life is action. You have to do things. But, but here, that's not what we're talking about this morning. Um, we're talking about the fact that often this doing part of life gets overemphasized and we lose who we are in what we do. Our lives aren't simply the sum of our activities. My old pastor, Pete Briscoe, used to say this when he would preach. He'd say, we aren't called human doings. We're called human beings, and it's for a reason. All of our actions are meant to be tied with our identity. Churches uh, can often lose sight of this. We, we can overemphasize the doing part and forget to remind our people of the being part. Like, uh, I got up here in August, and I simplified the things that we do as a church into four. We talked about the fact that we, um, uh, we worship and we belong. Uh, we serve and we multiply. These are the things that we as a church see- seek to do, right? We want to worship God, not just in church and with songs. We want to worship him all the time with everything that we do. We want to belong to him and to each other. We want to serve him and each other. Uh, we want to multiply and see more and more people Join us in worshiping him and belonging to him and each other and serving him and each other. That, that's, that's how we roll. It's what we do. It's, it's right for us to know those things and empathize those things. We shouldn't, in fact, bother ourselves or involve ourselves in things that don't accomplish those four ideas. But if all we do is emphasize the activity, we don't connect it to our hearts, well, we're going to find ourselves in trouble as a church. I found myself in trouble as your pastor just even in the last couple of weeks because my mind had turned towards uh, almost entirely the, the doing parts of our church. I was emphasizing uh, statistics and numbers and who was here and who wasn't here and, and how to switch those things and stem tides and fix this and fix that. And um, I became discouraged. Anybody have a trough in life? You kind of bought them out? I get there. I feel like a failure. I, I want to stop. Like, not just go to another church. I just don't want to be a pastor anymore some days. Uh, if I'm honest, oh, let's not be that. <laughs> but if I'm honest, some days I'm wondering about the whole Christian thing even. Because my mind is so trained on effects and actions and and this out here, and I've lost sight of where my faith resides. It starts in here. For me as a Christian and you as a Christian to be successful, for for us as a church to be successful in what we do, we must always remember who we are. That's why we wrote this other part of our uh, credo as a church. It's uh, our mission statement. Uh, say it with me. We, we live to glorify God by being disciples who make disciples. Just three things. The first one is our chief aim. We live to glorify God. This church exists for the glory of God. So you were created, if you didn't know this, by God, for God, to glorify God, to honor him, to make much of him, to point your life back to him. That's, that is the chief end of man. It's the chief aim of our church. Now that starts with us being something, us knowing who we are. We're disciples. We exist to glorify God by being 
Disciples, when I say disciple, most of us think follower, and certainly that is part or, or a great part of, of, of the discipleship process. I'm here to follow Jesus. In, in the days uh, as Jesus walked around, uh, the Jews had a saying, I want, to, I want to catch the dust of the rabbi's robe. I want to be in, in step with Jesus or my rabbi so much that the dust that he kicks up, I'm close enough to have it rest on me. And certainly, discipleship is following, but I would submit to you that the scriptures teach uh, an even deeper understanding of discipleship. It's not simply following Jesus. It's becoming indistinguishable from him. As disciples, we're not just meant to follow uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, rules and regulations and to act a certain way. We are meant to become in ourselves indistinguishable from Christ. That's why Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, listen, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me and through me. I was going to use this as an example. It's like we're identical twins with, with Jesus, but that's still two separate entities. A true disciple is one who becomes indistinguishable from the one that he follows. We're disciples. Our chief aim is to glorify God. And when we truly understand who we are as disciples, and when we give ourselves to that chief aim of glorifying God, the only result that can happen in our world is that more people become a part of us. Because Jesus said to his first disciples, you're gonna be a light on a hill. You're gonna be the salt of the earth. You're gonna draw people to me because I'm gonna work through you and my character is gonna be seen in you. And they're gonna understand that they're missing something without me. And there's gonna be more who follow me because you follow me well. Said another way, this statement might go like this, a Christian's life is to glorify God, to follow God, and to help, help others follow him too. And as I've gone through my trough, this has kind of been the, the, the silent whisperings, the quiet whisperings of the Spirit to me. Hey, Mark, don't worry about all the doings. Just remember who you are. Just remember what you are about as my follower. Just remember that I loved you first so that you could love me and that everything that you do with me and for me and through me springs from that. Get that straight. And then we'll go and I'll use you to change the world. This needs to be my passion, it's not always. This needs to be my identity, it's not always. But if I get this right, the other things will follow. So I'm so grateful for the church of Ephesus, for all the things that we're getting to learn as Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians in our study of, of the book of Ephesians, but also in this little note that Jesus uh, has John write in the book of Revelation. Now just some quick background on Revelation. It's uh, a fairly intense book. Anybody read it? We studied it here as a church about six years ago, and I spent most of that sermon series saying, here's what I think. <laughs> Because uh, a lot of it isn't, you know, completely certain. Lots of symbolic stuff, lots of uh, disagreements in, in the church historically over what this means and that means and this means. But, but then in this, you know, fairly in-depth book, there's these two chapters that are pretty simple. 
The second and third chapters of Revelation are just these letters that John is instructed by Jesus as he's in this vision uh, with Jesus in the throne room. That's chapter one. He sees Jesus in his throne room, and it's just an amazing thing. But then Jesus says, hey, John, I need you to write some notes for me. And he says, I'm, I'm going to send out these seven letters to these seven actual churches that existed in the time that John was alive, and, and I want you to just let them know, you know what I think. Uh, write these notes. And so John does. These uh, seven letters certainly went to these individual churches, but over the last couple thousand years that we've had them, we've understood that they're, they're letters for all churches in all areas everywhere to just kind of run a check on how they're doing. In fact, uh, at the end of each of the letters, if you read through those two chapters, you're going to see that Jesus instructs John to say these words or to pen these words. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. So for all time, as we follow in the Spirit, uh, in this life that we have with Christ, we, we should learn from these letters. And so today, let's learn together from what John wrote on behalf of Jesus to the church at Ephesus. Just one quick note before we start. Uh, Ephesus had been a church for about 40 years at the time of the writing of this note. Uh, we're going to celebrate our 25th anniversary as a church in March as a church. Big party. We'll talk about it more later. Um, but we're, we're, we're going to... Uh, you know, blow it out because God's been good to us for a, you know, a quarter of a century here as a church. But we're kind of on the same path, same arc, uh, in the midst of the same story as maybe Ephesus is. We're going to see lots of parallels between them and us as churches. Verse 1 starts like this. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstand, lampstands. Everybody says, Huh? Anybody ever read the Bible and been like, I'm not going to get this at all and just put it down? Let me encourage you. Read backwards and forwards a little bit. Lots of times the Bible helps you understand the Bible just on its own. Like if you went back one verse in chapter 1, verse 20, you would see uh, that as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, Jesus tells John, are the angels of the seven churches. They're the messengers. An angel, that's what angelos in Greek means. It's a messenger. A spiritual messenger that God is going to send uh, to deliver the, the notes that he's having uh, John write. And he says those seven lampstands, they're symbolic of these seven churches that I'm going to have you write to. So everybody gets stars and lampstands now? Stars, angels, lampstands, churches. So when Jesus says, going back to verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him, Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hands. He's the commander of those angels who are his messengers and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is a part of, the leader of, the head of these churches that he's writing to. What can we as a church learn from the church in Ephesus? First thing, with all of these letters, if you go on to read them each, copy their positives. What Jesus commends in these ancient churches I pray that he can say these things about us, and I think he can in many ways. It says in verse 2, Jesus saying this through John to Ephesus. He says, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those uh, who are evil. And You've tested those who call themselves apostles but aren't, and you found them to be false. This is the report card that Jesus issues to Ephesus. He says, hey, man, thumbs up. I know you're hard workers. He says, I, I see your works, but then he says, I, I know that you work, but you don't just work, you work hard. That's what 
toil means in the Greek there. You're hard workers. You're going above and beyond. Grateful to be a part of a church that for 25 years, God has built on the you know, blood, sweat, and tears on the backs of servants. Like many of you, I'm looking at you right now. You're serving in this church. And not just doing the very least, you're serving above and beyond. You're toiling. Many ministries and in many ways making a difference around here so that the work of God goes forward. This church doesn't become what it becomes except that God works through faithful servants that way. Ephesus had them. I'm grateful that we do. Let's go on. I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. Oh, may that be said of us. I think it can be. But there in Ephesus, over their 42 or so years of existence, they had understood that the, the work of life changed isn't an overnight thing. Anybody here been praying for someone for a long time? And uh, you're kind of getting tired of waiting? Uh, God is teaching you patient endurance. You, you are exercising in that waiting, if you're doing it the right way, patient endurance. Because you understand that life change takes time. Ephesus was a church that understood that. They also uh, were vigilant. He says, I know that you've tested those who call themselves apostles but actually aren't, and you've, you've dealt with them. You've, you've found them to be false, and you've, you've made sure that they haven't corrupted your truth. He actually goes on a little bit later in his letter, and Jesus tells John to say this. He says, uh, yet I have this uh, uh, in favor of you. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know a whole lot about these Nicolaitans, uh, I, I always thought it was Nickelodeon, anyway. But, uh, uh, but the Nicolaitans were this apparent uh, heretical group that you know, in, in, infiltrated the church there in Ephesus and other churches of that time. Uh, certainly uh, possible, especially in a world that was rife with false religions. And, uh, and, and when the Ephesians heard from these Nicolaitans, they were like, oh, that's not the gospel. I mean, we love you, but we hate your message. You gotta go. <laughs> Jesus goes on uh, in his letter to the Ephesians, and he tells John to write this in verse three. He says, I know you are enduring patiently. There's that patient endurance again. And, and you're bearing up, another set of verbs here. You're bearing up for my, for my namesake. Bearing up goes beyond working and working hard and patiently enduring. Bearing up means that you're withstanding opposition. You're hanging in there when things get hard. I'm reminded immediately of the story of the church in Ephesus uh, in Acts chapter 19, when everything was blown and going, people were coming to Jesus left and right. They were burning their books from their other religions. They were casting off their idols and getting rid of them, and they weren't going back to the store to buy more. This made the people who made the idols very angry. You can read all about it. And they get so mad that they decide to do something about it. They go to the local government, and they say, these Christians are ruining our culture. We're proud Ephesians. We've been worshiping the temple of Artemis uh, for years now. And they've come in and they've messed up everything, including our bank. <laughs> and so we need to get rid of these Christians. And as is wont to happen in the human race, when someone gets all frust you know, flustered and irate, they'll find other people who are uh, indignant and angry about other things, and they'll kind of funnel all of their rage and, <clears throat> and, and anger towards whatever the issue is, and then all of a sudden you got a mob, and then mind speak starts, or you know, the, the crowd speak starts happening. And now there's thousands of people, and they, they rush through the streets of Ephesus, and they find some of the members of the church in Ephesus, and they drag them into this, this arena, 
And, and they're threatening to kill these Christians. It'd be like you know, some of the people who are indignant uh, you know, against Christian values and Christian thinking in our community, getting all fired up on a Sunday morning and then rushing the church, and you guys are all like, whoa, what's going on? And they rush the stage and they grab me and they grab Tom Eichem, our executive pastor, and a couple of our elders like Clay and uh, Bernie, and, and, and they just throw us up on their hands and they walk down 60, chanting and yelling that these guys are ruining Brandon. Now, some of you might, after that morning at church, reevaluate whether or not you want to be a part of this. Hey, great that they took Mark and Tom and the other guys, but they might find out where I live and check out my posts on Facebook, and I might be next. And maybe you just kind of fade from view. If you read the story, it's a great story. Uh, these uh, Christians, Paul tried to save them, but they, uh, Paul's friends kept them from going into the arena because they thought, well, they're going to really kill you since you started this whole mess. And so Paul was kept from saving his friends, but this clerk from Ephesus, he stands up and he speaks wisdom. He says, you know what, we're under Roman rule, and if we keep this kind of unrest up, we're, we're going to get the hammer, fellas. We've got to let these guys go. This is stupid. This is crazy. It's not good for anybody. And they did. I mean, it's the most anticlimactic ending to a crazy story in the Bible. And they let him go. That was it. Miracles. But even in the midst of that kind of oppression and of that kind of opposition, the church in Ephesus didn't go away. It thrived. They bared up. I'm so grateful that in the history of our church, as we've gone through difficult things, those of you who've been here for a while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's been difficult things in the history of our church, pastors that have failed and hard things that we've gone through. We're still here. You know why? Because faithful believers sought not to follow one man or other men. They sought to follow Jesus. And we've borne up under the pressures for his namesake. The last thing he says there is that you haven't grown weary. And this is you know, just in a testimony to an early church uh, having its findings in a, in a foreign place far from its uh, original uh, beginnings in, in Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, it's here in modern-day Turkey. It starts in 52 AD under the leadership of Paul the Apostle, and it's still going strong 42 years later. And Jesus says, man, I'm so grateful that you've worked, you've worked hard, you've patiently endured, you've made sure that error hasn't crept into your church, uh, you have um, you know, faced opposition and kept going. You have not grown weary in living for me. You are doing at a high level and have been for a long time. Let's learn from that. I pray that when people look at our church, that's how they describe us. But I pray that we would learn from the failures of Ephesus too. That's what we're talking about this morning. They had all these actions down pat. But this is what Jesus had against them. But this I have against you, verse 4, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You're busy. You're effective. You've had a great run. But you know what's happening? You're doing this out of habit. You're doing this because... It's Sunday again, and this is what you do on Sunday. You're doing this because you've just always grown up Christian. You don't know anything different. 
You're doing this apart from knowing who you are. You're doing this apart from a passion and a love for the one who gave you his son. And that's just not going to work out long term. This I have against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. They had forgotten who they were. They had lost their passion for Christ. This love for Christ, I, I love that he calls it the first love, the, the, the love that you had at first. I love that he, he goes back to the beginning and he, and he uses that word first because first to me, when it talks about uh, the Christian life, it, it, it basically infers that uh, our first love, our first priority is our love of Christ. And we are blessed with many loves, aren't we? I love tacos, they're good. I love the Red Sox, they won. But I love Eleanor, and I love Ben and Cooper and Kai, and I love you. And I love uh, that I get to wake up and, and have the things that God has blessed me with. I love stuff, and there's so many things to love, but in the Christ life, we must not forget that our first love is Jesus. And that all other loves, continue to love those other people and those other things, but all other loves should pale in comparison to our love for Christ. And if we attempt to do this life with anything less, this life that we live will eventually break down because actions apart from passions always fail. So when it comes to order, our first love must be Christ. When it comes to the origination of all that we do, you think about first steps in a process of, of action or, do, or doing things, the first step of anything that we do for Christ should be, I love Jesus. I love him, and, and I'm doing this out of my love for him most and out of my love for him first. So that means when we serve, we don't serve for what it gives us. Everybody in here would probably get that one right on the test, right? I don't serve, so I get. But we don't even serve for what it gives others as our primary focus. When we serve, we serve first and foremost out of our love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. I need to be reminded of this as your pastor. Because sometimes... I'm a professional pastor first before I'm a Christian. And I focus on budgets and attendances and next visions and next dreams. I get so wrapped up in the doing of our church and of the doing as your pastor that I forget to just be a Christian. I forget to just love my Jesus. We're all susceptible. Perhaps you're even sitting here and you're kind of like me. You've gone through a trough, a season of doubt and discouragement. And it's making sense to you now. You've been busy, but you've lost your first love. How do we recover this first love? How do we find it? Wouldn't it be great if the Bible told us? Next verse. Jesus says, you've lost your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Is it that simple? 
I think so. Now, if you want to recover your first love, you've got to remember what it's like to love Jesus with a passion that leads your life. I remember when I came online with Jesus, I was in college. I'd been Christian-y up until then. Grew up in a pastor's house, gone to church every day, you know, every day the doors opened. It was actually a Bible school, Moody Bible Institute, when I actually, what I believe, became a, a full-fledged, full-on Christian. Because it's, it's at that time that I met Jesus personally. And I, um, it's like, it's like it's, the Bible went from being black and white to HD color. And I just couldn't get enough of him and his word. And I couldn't pray enough. And I couldn't share enough with the people that were around me the joy of my salvation. I just, I got cranked up about Jesus. Maybe it was promise keepers for you or some retreat or maybe it was, you know, back when you were in high school and you first came online with Christ. I don't know when you had that stirring. Maybe you've never had it. And you're just kind of sitting here a culture of the Christian. Here, here's what I would encourage you to do. Pray that God would lead you back to that passion you had before or to the passion you've never had. Remember from where you've fallen. I love talking with people in our church who are in that moment where their eyes are opening to Christ for the first time and they can't get enough of who he is and what he's doing and and they, they just get so excited, and they, they meet me in the corner after Sundays, and they're like, did you know this? I read this the other day. Did you know that this is in there? Yeah, I did. You're apparently excited about it more than me, though. I can't believe this is in there, that God loves us this way, that he's done this for us. Isn't this awesome? And you laugh, but some of you need to be on the other end of the Because you think you know Jesus, and you've been doing this a long time, but you've lost the love that you had at first. And this can't withhold that. It can't withstand that. It says repent. It says remember and then repent. I love that he just simply says repent. It doesn't need explanation. He doesn't need a whole bunch of words after that. Because everybody who read this back then would understand what repent really means. When we hear repent, I think we hear say sorry. Repent starts maybe with say sorry, but that's not repentance. Repentance is not just being sorry. Repentance is changing. It's being in one direction and heading in one direction in life and then saying that's not it and going in a different and new direction so as to have a new and different life. If you've been living a loveless existence in Christ, stop it. Repent. Change it up, Christian. Remember the passion that you lived with once. Find the passion that you've never lived with and let that be the fuel for what you do for your Savior. That's how it's supposed to work. He goes on and he says, listen, man. Remember, repent, and then repeat. He says, do the works that you did at first. Because here's, here's, here's the crazy things. The doing and the being go together. And a lot of times, we, we can do the doing stuff without the being, but, but the thing that often brings the being stuff about is the doing stuff. And us trying to focus in on doing it for the right reasons, like prayer. Anybody here pray? Who's prayed? Anybody prayed before? You prayed before? I know you have. I've seen you. You're good. We pray for meals. 
We pray when we're asked to pray at life group. We pray you know, with our kids before they go to sleep. Maybe we pray with our husbands and wives. And we, we got our times to pray. But you know what the Bible says about prayer? It says pray without ceasing. Right? We're always supposed to be praying. We're always supposed to be in an attitude of prayer. But so often in my life, I just pray when I'm supposed to. And what God's teaching me is like, hey, bro, just pray. Just talk to me. Let me put it this way. If you're going to have a relationship with someone, there's certain things that go into that relationship to make that relationship strong. Eleanor and I will be married 27 years, February 1st. And when people ask me how long I've been married to Eleanor, I always tell people, not long enough. And I mean that because I don't just love Eleanor, I like Eleanor. I, I enjoy being with Eleanor. And we, we've gotten the relationship that we've gotten because by the grace of God, he's, he's kept us from a lot of the things that could hurt us. And he's just given us some patterns that build relationships naturally. Like, I love the sound of my wife's voice. I hear it a lot. Because in our, <laughs> that's, that sounded bad. <clears throat> what I meant was, in our relationship, she'll tell you this, she's got lots to talk about. And so if we drive somewhere, she'll do most of the talking. If we sit down and have coffee, she'll do most of the talking. Sometimes she'll even look at me and she'll say, hey, Mark, I'm so sorry. I'm doing all the talking here. And I'll be like, babe, I just love the sound of your voice. And I'm not trying to get out of talking back. I just, I'm fine with her talking. I'm fine with hearing from her because as I hear from her, I learn about her and I love her more, right? Doesn't this sound suspiciously like us reading God's word? Like if you involve yourself in God's word, you're hearing from God himself. He wrote the book. He's sharing himself with you in it. And the more time you spend in God's word, the more you're hearing from God and the fonder and the deeper your love for him grows. When we pray, listen, prayer's a conversation. When Eleanor and I, when, when I do kick in the gear and we have a conversation, and sometimes it's lively and sometimes, you know, it's, but when we're talking back and forth and just relating, that conversation builds our love for each other. That's what prayer's supposed to do in your relationship. Do the things you did at first. Read God's word. Pray to him. When Eleanor's not with me, I think about her. I look forward to the times that I get to be with her next. She's on my mind. You're always on my mind, right? <laughs> you know what that is? The Bible calls that meditation. You and I are meant to meditate on the scriptures. We're meant to think about our God. Even when we're not in church, we're not praying. I mean, just he's, he's meant to occupy our thoughts. And as he does, our fondness for him grows. Jesus says, hey, Ephesus, just get back to what you know to do. It's relationship stuff. And, and if, <laughs> if I can just sum all this part up by saying this, listen, just make room for Jesus in your life. When, when the Christmas tree comes down from our attic every year, um, I, I've always marveled at the fact that it's huge. Somebody got a fake tree that you're like, wow, that's bigger than I remember. And, and every year we put it in our living room, we, we've got to move furniture around for it to actually fit. So for 350 whatever days a year, living room looks like this, but when the tree comes out, living room changes. When you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, the living room changed. And for us to fit him in, we had to bend and, 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 and sacrifice and, and change so that, that he would fit. And this illustration, I've been saying it all weekend, I don't know if it's perfect, because what's supposed to happen is when Jesus comes into our life, the furniture goes away. It's just the tree. Are you with me? But if we're going to have this love for him, 
We need to remember. We need to repent. And we need to repeat the things that we know to do. The second, and this is the last part, so you're like, is he almost done? Yeah. This is the only other thing that I want to show you from this letter. Jesus tells John, <clears throat> commend them for all those amazing things, but remind them that they've lost their first love. Let them know how they can find it again, but then give them this warning. If you do not do these things, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Everybody remember what the lampstand is? Yeah, what Jesus just said to the church in Ephesus is that if you can't find your first love, you're not going to have a church. Anybody want to guess that if you traveled right now to Turkey where Ephesus used to situate itself, if you could go to this church? Anybody want to guess if you can? You can't. It's not there. Just like in so many places in our world, there were churches at one time but aren't anymore. Europe, they're almost all museums. Even here in America, there's fewer and fewer churches every day. And don't, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm talking about groups of Christ's disciples worshiping him together and growing in relationship with him and each other. Why does that happen? They did all the right things. Well, the way it happens in my life, the way it happens in church's lives, the way it happens in anybody's life, is that long before we spiritually die, fade away, walk away from Jesus, our hearts are gone first. And so I thought, as I was preparing for this sermon, that I'd get up and I'd give us all our marching orders. Let's do this, this, and this, and this. Let's make sure we knock this out this year. Let's be careful with this. Let's grow our life groups and our children's ministries. And let's do this and this. <clears throat> I, I'm not saying that to you today. I pray that God grows us, that we continue to make a difference for him in our world. But I know that the only way that that will happen is if we have our first love. The only way that that'll happen is that if Jesus is the center of our lives, of our church, of it all. You stand and sing that with me. Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus at the center of our church Lord Jesus be the center of your church and every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess you Jesus Lord, that's our prayer. We're, we're going to pray together now. I know you're used to hearing me just talk at the end of one of these things. You pray with me. 
You pray for yourself. You pray for the people next to you, whether you know them or not. You pray that we, as Christ's followers, would burn with passion for our Savior, that it would fuel everything that we do, that we would know who we are in Christ. You pray that as I pray that this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, I thank you for coming and dying for me and for us, for raising again and giving us life. Lord, I want to pray um, that as we go forward with this year, that you would lead us into everything that we're going to face, individually and as a church, compelled by our love for you, controlled by our love for you, driven by our love for you. Get that right in us first, God, and then lead us to whatever else. I pray these things, trusting that you hear us, knowing that you want this, and asking you to give it to us. Be the center of our lives and of your church. I pray always in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, you guys. I love you. Let's have a great year together serving him. If you're a member, make sure you drop off your ballot before you leave. But otherwise, go. Come back next week. We'll talk more.